may be seated. Well, my name is Pastor Ray Cosley. I'm one of the pastors here at Living Way. And if you're here visiting, we're glad that you're here. If you're here long term, we are also glad that you're as well. We want to welcome all of you who are uh, joining us via live stream. Well, I wanted to begin this new year actually with an ending. An ending to a book that has, for me, changed my life. And that is the book of Ephesians. Since 2020, this book has been with us. It's been with us through a pandemic, a sabbatical, a bout with cancer, new values as a church, church's family. And it has been for me personally an anchor when my personal family struggles threaten to rob me of peace and joy. This book has been for me the last couple years a guide and a strength in times where I find myself weak. I encountered God in supernatural ways through this book, in ways that I will never forget for all eternity. And it has brought up in me profound praise for all that Christ has done. And I pray that that has been the same for you in some way as we've traveled through this book. And now it's time for us to move to other pastors. And as I reflected on this, I wondered, can any other pastures be greener? I've truly grown fond of this book as I've gained so much. And so as we prepare ourselves to say goodbye to a faithful companion, I want to do a sort of survey. And these will be my last, I believe, two messages that we would be able to see from a forest perspective a highlight of some of the major and wonderful and powerfully transforming themes that have run through the book. I was going to just preach one sermon, but as you guys know, I, uh, I just couldn't do it. And so I'm going to preach the first half of Ephesians, a running theme, and then Pastor James is actually going to be preaching on the Holy Spirit next week. And then we will conclude the book of Ephesians as I will do part two, chapters four through six. So with that, let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It truly is wonderful. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is sweet like honey on our lips. Your word is truth. It guides us. It comforts us. It convicts us. It strengthens and compels us. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, God, for the book of Ephesians. And God, as we attempt to land this plane, will you meet us, God, Holy Spirit, once again? That you, Holy Spirit, would write on your word and that it would produce fruit far beyond what this mere man can conjure up. May it be supernatural in our encounter with the living Christ and that in seeing and experiencing the living Christ, we might grow deeper in the life that only you can give. So God, will you comfort every mind? Will you strengthen every heart? And will you grant us attention to these things? And I pray against the evil one. Any force that is arrayed against us, we pray against you right now in the name of Christ. Based on the authority that belongs to us, we command you to remove any influence on the mind and on the heart and on the body that is in this place right now in Jesus' name. And we entrust God this time to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. I'm going to try to take, if you will, a logical approach through the book, at least the first three chapters. So I won't necessarily go one, two, three. But as I looked at the themes, and Dr. Clint Arnold was very helpful for me in this, I kind of wanted to do it based on what makes sense logically. And so what we first see that I think is compelling for us to be able to truly see the wonder and the beauty of chapter 1 
It's the first begin in chapter 2 of verse 1, where Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind that were by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, Paul paints a very grim picture, a picture of a world in which many of us sometimes don't pay attention to, but that we are affected by each one. He tells us of our three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world. In his book, Losing Our Virtue, David Wells describes the world. The world is a system of values in any given age, which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange, end quote. And we see this in our culture, do we not? The world is flipped on its head when it comes to the topic of sexuality, when it comes to our coarse talk and language, when it comes to how we define murder. The mantra of our day in this world is my truth. And however I define truth is what truth is. And I live according to my truth. And these types of worldly ideologies and philosophies that we see in the world, frankly and disturbingly, has now found itself in the church. And as we preached through this book, we talked about that, the progressive church, progressive Christianity. Another way of saying that there are aspects of what are, quote-unquote, the Christian church that are moving away from orthodox Christianity to be acceptable to the world. This is the world that Paul is speaking of. But not only does he talk about the world, he talks about Satan. And he calls Satan the ruler of the realm of the air. I don't know any better way to translate that to literally to say that the air that we breathe, the very atmosphere that you breathe when you walk out of these doors and even in these doors, is permeated by a personal evil power. Paul calls him the power of the air. And so the whole world, the book of John says, lies under this evil power. You see, Satan rules the financial world. He rules business. He rules industry. He rules the stock market. He rules the banking system, political institutions and parties. He rules entertainment, TV, film, media, radio, sports, education, the family, the home, neighborhoods, civic clubs, social services. He rules these things. He is not the ultimate ruler because God is. But God has given him a leash, and he wields it with great might and great destruction. And then lastly, Paul talks about the flesh. And these are those things that are fueled by the things that are in us. So that is, he says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The body and the mind. It's our reasoning, if you will. It's how we, in our own desires, reason away what God would say, and instead we do life our way. It's the epithumia. I've talked about this before, the over-desires. This is what Paul is talking about. And what is the outcome? Chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And verse 3 At the end of verse 3, and you were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is a grim picture. You're telling me that the world, the flesh, and the devil create death externally and internally. And 
it brings upon the very wrath of God. Because God is holy, he is perfect, he is righteous. And so any measure of unrighteousness needs to be punished. And that means an eternity in hell. You see, Paul paints a very grim picture. This is the state of this world that we live in. And in verse 12 of chapter 2, Paul says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope. Everybody say hope. And without God in the world. The world is without hope. Because all it has is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here's where we see the theme that jumped out for me as I asked myself, as there are so many themes in the book of Ephesians. I felt like the Lord brought this theme that I want to share with you in the next two messages. Because here's the reality. With that grim of a picture, we need a personal power greater than our own to rescue us. And this personal power must be willing to step out in love and embrace us in our mess or we will find ourselves eternally damned. We need a Savior. And this is something that everybody in the world deep down inside knows. The book of Romans chapter 1 says this, that all of us have this God void. We all have this inkling that we were made for God and yet we choose not to. And when the world and the flesh and the devil bear in, the one outcome is death. And it is the reason why death is feared by everyone. It is the number one thing that everyone fears. And that came true as we experienced what was a near tragedy on the football field with DeMar Hamlin. I don't know if you saw the clip, but it was a basic tackle. And somebody from the Cincinnati Bengals went down, shoulder first, and hit DeMar right in his chest. And in that moment, he got up very quickly. And then, just like that, he collapsed and fell. Immediately going into what they found out later, cardiac arrest. And they tried to revive him for nine minutes on that football field. And in that moment, football didn't matter. In the moment, what everyone could feel in that stadium was the thing that we fear most, and it's death. And the reason why death exists is because the world, the flesh, and the devil and I want you to hear a response from someone who has no faith, who does not believe in the things that we as Christians believe in. And this was his response. It's a YouTube clip that I want you to listen to. A terrifying event. And it made me in the moment, I got to say, bro, two of the closest people in the world to me, my wife and you, my partner for years, are deeply religious people, and I, I'm not. And it made me a little envious in that moment and since then that I didn't have, like, that foundation of there's, there's a, I don't want to say a greater purpose or a higher power or something, because I feel like at times like this, when there's an inexplicable tragedy, you're almost flailing about, like, why, well, why did it happen to this kid in this moment? And then you learn he's such a good kid. And so, I don't know if any of that made sense to the audience. I hope it did. Um, but that's how I was feeling watching something we'd never seen on an NFL field before. Can you notice how uncomfortable he was? And he said, I felt as if I was just flailing without an anchor. And the individual standing next to him um, or that they saw in the clip, he's a Christian, he's a believer. And so they, those two work together. And he said, I have no religious foundation like you do. And as a result, when death came staring at me, I found myself flailing. 
Because in that moment, everybody, everybody on that football field, everybody, the millions of people that were watching that, you know what they felt? They felt powerless. They felt like they had run into something that was greater than what they could handle. And they had no control. And in that moment, this is what was stunning. Everybody did what? They got on their knees. Because in that moment, they knew they needed power. A power that they in themselves did not have. And this is where the two things that I saw in the book of Ephesians came screaming out at me that I want to highlight for us. The two things that are running through this book that make me realize why Paul emphasized them so profoundly. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil are no joke. And it's this. Power and love. If you will... I want to travel through the first three chapters, and I want you to see power and love. Today, we will talk about vertical love and vertical power, because that's what Paul highlights in the first three chapters. And maybe you may find yourself entering into 2023 questioning God's love. As I think I want to begin there. I know in 2022, I found myself there at times. Whether it be the small things like the water leaks that were in my walls and the mold growing in them. Or whether it was some of the profound things that happened while we were going through this book of Ephesians for the past couple of years. Like Danny with cancer. God, where is your love? Or my son, who is deeply entrenched in the world, the flesh, and Satan. And I work so hard as a parent to try to guide him into truth and to come to know Christ's love. And yet he finds himself so far from it. And I ask myself, God, how is this love? Israel asked the same question, too, in the book of Malachi. Up to this point, Israel was in economic misery, prolonged drought, famine, crop failure, pestilence. They were dealing with confiscated property. They were on the verge of debt, slavery on a large scale. The list goes on and on. And they asked the question, God, how is this love? And the danger in that question is that the moment we begin to question the love of God in our lives, is the moment we begin to move into sin. This is why it is so important to know the love of God. You see, remember the trifecta, world, flesh, devil. And I may be getting ahead of myself here, but Paul knows that those things are the things that haunt us most. These are the enemies that are constant. And they are tempting to constantly draw us back to feed on those three. And what you see here in Malachi chapter 1 is Israel was questioning the love of God. And so it began to move them into the flesh. Which is exactly what causes us to do the same thing. You see, when you question his power and his love, that's when sexual sin is knocking at your door. When you feel like you haven't gotten what you deserve, that's when greed is knocking on your window. That's when you find yourself indifferent to the will of God because because you look at your life, whatever situation you're in, and you're saying, God, this doesn't look like love. And so what happens? We instinctively look to the world, the flesh, and the devil every single time the moment we start to question it. And so I'm starting, too, to see why Paul focused on love and power. And you may be asking yourself right now, where is God loving me in my particular situation? How is the life that I'm living right now the love of God? 
And as a result, you may find yourself flirting with sin in some area. You might find yourself with temptations that are a little bit stronger than what you were anticipating. Giving in to anxiety, giving in to lust, giving in to anger, giving in to lying and manipulation, giving in to envy. Knowing that Paul knows what comes after chapter 2, it makes sense to me why he begins in chapter 1 with a picture of love and power. You know, I never thought the book of Ephesians was a love book, but it's actually one of the most profound love books in the entire Bible. And Paul floods us with it in the first three chapters. And he starts painting the picture in chapter 1 of verse 4. Even as he chose us in him. Everybody say, chose us. Remember I talked about Israel and how Israel asked asked the question to Malachi, God, how have you loved us? We're in slavery. We're in pestilence. Our homes are being ransacked. We don't have any food, water, drink. We're, We're losing our women. What's the problem? You know what God's answer to that is? How have I loved you? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? What kind of answer is that? In other words, what God says to Israel is the same thing that he says to us in verse 4. You want to know how I loved you? I chose you. You see, God chose Jacob over Esau, even though Esau was born what? First. Esau deserved the birthright. Esau deserved, if you will, the special love. But God didn't choose Esau. He chose who? Jacob. And in verse 4, he says, even as he chose us in him. You see, choice is the language of love. When you choose something, you're demonstrating you value one thing over another. I've used this analogy before, right? But I chose my wife. There are a lot of other women out there. But my wife was the prime prospect. Come on now. Come on now. And by virtue of the fact that I what? Chose her communicates already love. I have set my eye on you above all else. And here, what we see in the book of Ephesians The first thing that Paul starts out with, because he knows, he knows chapter 2, verse 1 is coming. He knows that, that, that that you're tempted by the world, the flesh, and the love that comes from Satan. And so he wants to remind you from the beginning, God loves you. And you want to know how much he loves you? He chose you. But then Paul ups the ante. Not only did he choose you, but verse 4 says, he chose you before the foundation of the what? World. This means that you couldn't even work or merit this love. Before there was a nebula, star, galaxy, before there was a Saturn or Mars, before there was a moon, before there was gravity, before there was let there be, God chose you. Out of all the individuals that would be, the billions upon billions of people that would exist, if you're sitting here right now and you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord, Savior, and treasure, and you have come to him and seen him as the wonderful thing that he is, That's because he chose you above all else. Before the foundations of the world. But then there's another level of love. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. Everybody say predestined. That means that you were determined before the foundations of the world. To belong to God as his son. And I like the way the text says, to himself. You see that? He predestined that son according to the purpose of his will. And 
to himself through Jesus Christ. You were chosen, predestined, adopted, belonging to the very family of God. He let you in. But he didn't just let you in, he calls you his son. But if you're wondering still about the love of God, what about verse 7? In him we have what? Redemption. So not only is there choosing love, not only is there a love that was before the foundations of the world, not only is there determined, predestined love to where you belong to the God of the universe, there's also, verse 7, redeeming love. And how can you see that how much the love it is? It's through his blood. We're talking about Jesus here, the son of the living God, the God who is God of all gods, king of all kings, Lord of all lords, condescended, took on flesh, walked on, on, on dirt, was crucified on a cross, and then shed his blood. This is why Paul says in Romans, he did not spare his own son. How much more will he also with him graciously give you all things? If you want to know your love, just look at the cross. But Paul's not done with this theme of love. Because then in chapter 2, after talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil, verse 4, oh, some people think those are the greatest two words in all the Bible. Everybody say them. But God. Everybody say, but God. But even though we were dead, even though we were destined for wrath, verse 3, but God, being rich in mercy, there's love, because of the what? It's not just love, it's what? It's great love, which, which he has loved us. Even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He's just piling on the love. You've been chosen. You've been chosen before the foundations of the world. You've been chosen so much that you're predestined to be a son in his family. You're so loved that verse 7, you are redeemed. You want to know how? By his blood. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God being great love. And if you still don't know that you're loved, God created a metaphor to see just what it looks like for you to be loved by him. And Paul tells us that in chapter 5. It's a chapter we're familiar with, and I'll just quote it quickly. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the what? Church. And gave himself up for her. Do you realize the primary reason why marriage exists is so that you can know just how much God loves you? I tell people all the time, you're not ready to get married if that is not your primary aim in your marriage, is to reflect that kind of love for the world to see. If you want to know, if you want to have some inkling or some sense of the intimacy that Jesus Christ feels for you, just look at marriage. Just look at all of the emotions and feelings that you feel toward your spouse. The romantic love, the, the committed covenantal love. The love that says, baby, I will run through 50 walls and keep going if I have to because I love you that much. That Korean drama kind of love. Jesus loves you like that. You see, love takes on its greatest force when it's exclusive. Come on now. 
Marriage is exclusive. And there's a reason why God chose marriage to display just how much he loves you in marriage. And this is why he says in verse 4, we're holy and blameless before him. You see, the one who spoke nebulas and galaxies into existence, the God who is robed in unapproachable light, he chose you. The only true God, the one that has angels swirling all about him singing holy, holy, holy. He loved you before there was a let there be. He brought you into his family. Great love, kind eyes, mercy, and exclusive love. And this was when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Did you ever marry somebody or date somebody that you thought was ugly? That's another level of love. And that is the gospel. Because you was ugly. I just remember recently talking to someone who was saying, I just can't see how God loves me right now. Because of all of the challenges and trials and tribulations that I find myself in. I'm so discouraged. I'm so depressed. I just feel like his love is so far from me. Well, I want to encourage that person right now, and I want to encourage every single person under the sound of my voice. If there's anything that you've forgotten about the two years that we preached through the book of Ephesians, I want you to remember in this book, he loves you. If you ever want to be reminded of how profoundly God loves you, just go back to Ephesians and just take a slow roll through chapters 1, 2, and 3. And ask the Spirit of God to minister it to your heart. And I believe and trust and know that you will walk away feeling more loved than you could have ever imagined or ever hoped. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Notice Paul breaks down this love before he talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil in chapter 2. You see, vertical love is the theme, and I don't want us to forget that. But there's also another theme that runs, I believe, in tandem with it. Not only do we see love in chapter 1, 2, but also we see power. Power. And that's where I want to go for the remainder of the message. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. God, where's your power? Where's your power? Your power, God, for me to overcome this addiction. Your power, God, for me to overcome this bitterness. God, I need power to deal with this anger. This resentment that I have toward you or toward others. God, where's your power in my marriage? Where's your power in my parenting? Where's your power with my employment? I'm having a hard time with my boss. I want to ask you this question, where's the place where you're doubting God's power? I want you to name it. I want you to identify it. Where are you maybe in 2023 wanting to see his power display in your life? Well, I want to show you the picture that Paul gives us, not only of God's vertical love, but his vertical power. And this theme for me was, I just loved it. It was just stunning for me to see how it was interwoven all throughout the book. First, we see in verse 4, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. You know what that's telling us? 
That's telling us that God existed before there was creation. That's powerful. I'm watching some Netflix. It's talking about the universe. And it's talking about all these intricate things about the planets and how the planets way up there affect the earth down here. And, um, and they just keep talking about how wonderful and magnificent it is. But then the conclusion is, well, this just happened kind of billions and billions and billions of years over time. I'm like, are you kidding me? The intricacy that we see and the way the universe is framed and how this earth is just tailor-made for humanity as well as all of the living life, and then you conclude that it just kind of happened by chance? Well, see, verse 4 is telling us that, no, there's a power behind this universe. And if they can't even measure the universe, how powerful then is the God who created it? But not only has he existed before creation, verse 4, he is sovereign over it. And the thing that struck me was so dope is I've been memorizing chapter 1, and I, as I was memorizing it, I felt the Holy Spirit quickening me to this constant phrase that Paul continues to retort. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons according to the what? Purpose of his will. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of of his grace. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in our wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 11, and this is what kind of killed it for me. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. According to his purpose, according to his riches, according to his purpose, according to his purpose, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is nothing in the entire universe, in all of history, that does not move by verse 11. Everything is according to his purpose. Everything moves according to his counsel. Everything moves according to his will. There is nothing that comes against it. There is nothing that can thwart it. There is nothing that can say contrary to it. Everything, top to bottom, beginning to end, is all under the counsel of the will of the sovereign control of God. And this is why Paul sums it up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, when he says, He's one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And then Paul talks about more power. Not only is God existed before creation, not only is sovereign over all creation, Christ he then focuses in on his power. Verse 19 of chapter 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, everybody say great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above, everybody say far above, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Come on now. All that is power. In verse 19, he says, immeasurable greatness. This term appears in the song of Moses of after the Exodus. It's the same term that was used when he split the sea. Then Paul's not done. He uses immeasurable. 
But it's not just immeasurable in verse 19. It is, it is verse 20, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That, that, that working, it is the working of his great might or powerful working. And then he uses the word strength. And then he uses the word might. If you look at verses 19 and 20, he's just trying to tag on all of these words. In fact, Paul in verses 19 and 20 almost exhausts all of the Greek language for the word power. He's just, he's just like, okay, give me another word for power. Nope. Give me another one. Give me another one. Give me another one. I got to find another one. I got to find another one because these people that I'm writing to and the church that is to come has to know the wonder and the power of Jesus Christ. But I'm not done talking about, first I'm going to give you words, but then, then he says, then I'm going to describe to you just what it looks like. Verse 21, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. What are those things that he's talking about there? He's talking about the devil before he's even gotten to chapter 2. He's talking about every satanic and evil force that is arrayed against this world and the church. And it's also power in verse 20 when he raised him from the dead, seated him. And I talked about that. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he sat down. When he went up into the heavenlies with the Father, you know what that's a symbol of? That's a symbol of power. That's a symbol of I just went out and whooped on all my enemies and now I'm done. I'm sitting down as king because that's just how bad I am. And that seating after Jesus was raised in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, the scholars differ with this, but I agree with Dr. Clint Arnold. It says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also what? Descended into the lower regions of the earth. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, Christ captured a host of captives, which is actually referring to the defeat of principalities and powers, that spiritual evil forces... He descended into the lower parts of the earth, the underworld, and he just proclaimed victory to all the devils down there. I whooped all y'all. Public spectacle. It's called the cross. You thought you had my people, but you don't. I got them. And I'm just coming down for a victory lap. You know the victory laps? Any of y'all run track? Victory laps. I love victory laps when I was running track, when I was whooping. Yeah, victory lap. Got y'all. That's what Jesus was doing when he resurrected from the dead. Victory lap. What Paul has given us a picture of in verses 19 through 22 is three-dimensional power as a result of his resurrection. He's got power over the underworld. He's got power over the earthly world, chapter 1, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in heaven, and things on what? Earth. And he has power over the heavenly world, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. Three-dimensional power. But then, he's not done. Because it says in verse 19 that he raised him. Now here's my question. Who raised Jesus? There's a little veiled thing right here. Who raised Jesus? Now, the whole entire triunity was the triune God was involved in the resurrection. I wonder if y'all tell me I'm a heretic or something like that. But Romans chapter 8 verse 11. Who raised Jesus? If the, what? Spirit 
who raised Jesus from the dwells, dead dwells in you, who has raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit. And do you know the primary designation of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church is what? Power. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And this is a major emphasis of the two intercessory prayers that we saw in the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 1 verse 16, the first prayer. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He wants to give you the what? Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And what is the production or what is the outcome that comes when you get the spirit of wisdom and revelation? Not only do you have your hearts enlightened that you can know what the hope that you've been called, you can know what are the riches, but what also, when you get the spirit of wisdom and revelation, what do you get in verse 19? You understand and come to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Paul wants us to know his power. And that comes through the spirit because the spirit is the empowering force in the Godhead. You see, Ephesians has much to say about the nature and work of the Holy Spirit. But one of the most important features that I don't want you to walk over or or don't, don't want you to miss in the book of Ephesians is that he represents the empowering presence of God in the life of the believer. Now, why is Paul going out of his way to emphasize love, to emphasize power? He's just power, power. I'm seeing power all over the place. I mean, again, there's things I'm skipping over. Chapter 2 has power when it talks about the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. The fact that God busted through that wall, you know what? That takes power. The fact that now there's no more the law. There's Jew, Gentile, grace, and we are all now one in Jesus Christ, which is why our vision is to be a gospel-revealing, missional community. Because when you have Jew, Gentile, black, white, Asian, Latino, when you have people from all these different aspects of, 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 of creation coming together under one roof, under the gospel, it reveals the power of the gospel. That's why that's our vision, church. That's why we want to see people of different socioeconomic status in this church. That's why we prize our children in this church. That's why we want to see people of different color and background in this church. Because when all those people come together, it demonstrates the fact that God busted through that wall, and now he has one church under his auspices, and we all give him glory to his name. I hope you're seeing what I'm seeing. Paul is really going out of his way to highlight two things, love and power. And so I remind us again why. Why power, though? Listen, God can love us all he wants, but if he lacks the power to deliver us from the trifecta that is the world, the flesh, and the devil— then his love is just simply a nice sentiment that can't truly free us. We talk about love a lot, but you can't have the love without the power. This is humanity's greatest foe. And if the world and the flesh and the devil are not defeated, you are lost. You're lost. This is why that man in that YouTube clip sat there. Could you see how lost he looked? He just looked like he had no footing. He had no anchor because he had run into something that was more powerful than anything in the earth. He couldn't look to anybody on earth to deal with the fact that he felt himself at a free fall and didn't know how to catch himself. And that's why he looked at um, the other guy that was sitting next to him and said, I envy you. I envy you. 
Because I can see in you, you're anchored. You're grieving, you're hurting that this man may die. But I can feel your anchor. And I envy you because I don't have that. And I use that word anchored intentionally. You see, Paul wants us to see Christ has both power and love. It is his love that compels him to give us his power. And it is power that enables us to come against the greatest force that the human race has ever known, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christ is powerful, and Christ is loving. Now here's where it now intersects for us as I begin to land this plane. In Ephesians chapter 4, 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, watch this, don't miss this, go slow. He made us alive together with Christ. That's should make everybody up in here shout. Did you just hear what I said when I described who Christ is? Paul now says, because of his love, we are now in Christ. What does that mean? To be in Christ? Paul uses this expression 34 times in some way, shape, or form in the book of Ephesians. He must want you to know that you are in Christ. Maybe I can name some of those for you. As we've been going through the book of Ephesians, to be in Christ is to be saved. Chapter 2, verse 5, 8, 5, 23. It's to be a new creation. Chapter 2, verse 10. It's to be brought near to God. Chapter 2, verse 13. It's to be given access to God. Chapter 2, verse 18. It's to be greatly loved. Chapter 3, verse 17. It's to be possessed by God. Chapter 1, verse 14. It is to be sealed as God's property. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 30. It is to be God's inheritance. Chapter 1, verse 18. It is to be God's heir. It is to be adopted by God, beloved by God, members of God's kingdom, chosen by God, predestined by God, called by God, redeemed by God, forgiven by God, sanctified by God. In Christ you are cleansed. In Christ you're a saint. In Christ you are part of his body. In Christ you're a member of the household of God. In Christ you're a part of the holy temple, God's building. In Christ you are his dwelling place. In Christ you are his workmanship. In Christ you are light. In Christ you are servant of Christ. I could go on and on and on. What that means is all the things that are true of Christ are now true of you in him. Because he has the power and the love to put you in him. If he has the love but no power, then you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. But see, because he rose from the dead and he went down and he whooped up on those captives... And he raised, it says, with all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth is what? Mine. It's mine. So guess what that means? That there is nothing in this world that can take you away from me. Nothing. If I declare my love on you, you can't have a bad day and me look at you sideways and be like, I'm through. I can't love you any more or any less than you are already loved in me. 
Your sin is not strong enough to keep me from loving you because I whooped it. That's how powerful I am. And here's what's also stunning. Not only are you loved that profoundly, but watch this. Chapter 2, verse 6 is just mind-blowing. And he raised us up with him. Hold up. That's present tense. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When Jesus is seated, that is a position of what? Power. Right? We are with him seated. Which means to be in Christ is to be in his power and love. All who put their faith in Jesus, we actually participate in his resurrection and exaltation. And the implications, and I love how Dr. Arnold says this, is that now, right now, if you are in Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, Savior, and treasure, then right now you share Christ's power and authority over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right now. You know what this means? This means that we don't have to succumb to the bondage and slavery of the world, the flesh, and Satan. This means that the greatest foe that exists in all of humanity is no longer our master. And this is where the second part of Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 come into play. But I want you to notice how Paul sums up chapter 3. How does he end these two themes? And this is why it was so telling for me that love and power are the themes as I close. His prayer in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, watch this, that he may grant you to be strengthened with what? Power. That's the first thing he prays. He tells you about his power, and then he prays, strengthen him with power. And where does it come? Through the agent of power, his what? Spirit. In your inner being, So that, purpose clause, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then watch this. You see the other one. That being what? Rooted and grounded in what? Love. That you may know. You have strength to comprehend what is the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth. You know what that is? I talked about this. You can go back to the sermon. You know what he's talking about? Power. Paul is saying, I want you to know love. I want you to know power. I want you to know love. I want you to know power. You got to have his spirit to get power. You got to know his love to be rooted. You remember the man, he was flailing. He was like, I just have no footing. He have no footing. Because when you're rooted in the love of God, no matter what comes your way, you know that your present and your future is solid. But if you don't know the love of God, if you don't know how profoundly he loves you, 
If you don't know that he loves you with a choosing kind of love. If he, he loved you before the foundations of the world were made. He loved you with, with a redeeming love. That, that he loved you in such a way that he made you his own and you belong to him. That he loves you in such a way that he gave up his only son and shed his blood. If you don't know that kind of love, then you're not going to have an anchor. You're not going to have an anchor when life doesn't go the way you want it. And right now, I'm sure there are plenty of us where life isn't going the way we want it. Amen? Or is it just me? And that's when we begin to question the love of God. And my desire for you, church, the book of Ephesians, is that in 2023 and beyond, you will be anchored in his love. That was Paul's prayer. And as our pastors, that's our prayer for you. That you would know the love of God and that you would know his power. And this is why it's so interesting that Paul ends chapter 3 with praying for them for power because look at verse 4, and I end this. And therefore, I therefore as a prisoner of the Lord urge you to what? Walk. You can't walk the way you're supposed to walk without power. That's why he puts it right there. And I'm going to talk more about that next week. Because there's a praying for power so you can walk in unity. Chapter 4, so you don't go back into the world. Chapter 4, so you don't step into envy and bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. Chapter 4, you want to have a dope marriage. Chapter 5, you want to have a, a deal with your employer and employee. Parenting. Chapter 6, you don't want to get beat down by the devil. Chapter 6, Paul prays for power. And then, not only does he pray for power, he then, and we'll talk about it in a couple weeks, he then gives us the avenues to power. Because guess what? The world, the flesh, and the devil is not through with you yet. It's still trying to draw you in. It still wants to claim you as its own. It's called the already not yet. And we're not fully redeemed. And so Paul then, after giving a wonderful picture of God's love and the wonderful picture of the power of Christ, he then now moves us into how we can walk in that kind of power and experience the life that every single one of us want to live in him. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Maybe you're in a place right now where you're asking God, God, how have you loved me? Maybe you're wondering, God, where is your love? I want to encourage you right now. Just take that honest feeling before him. He can carry it. And just be authentic and real with him. And share with him, God, this is where I'm struggling right now. With how you're loving me. I'm not liking it. I'm not feeling it. And then from a vulnerable place, an honest place, just ask him, God, will you do chapter 3, verse 16, and root me. Root me and ground me right now in your love, please. Help my unbelief. Help me to believe that you truly love me because I'm having a hard time. And then secondarily, maybe there's a place where you're wanting to see power. I want you to go through the same exercise. I know there are areas in my life where I wonder, God, where's your power? Or places in my life where I would like to see God exhibit his power. Ask God, show me where your power is on display because it is. It may not be where you want it because he's also sovereign. But his power is on display. It's somewhere. In your situation, ask God, please, will you give me eyes to see it?
take about 30 seconds. Yes, God, I pray what Paul prayed. That God, according to your riches and glory, that you would grant each person in the sound of my voice to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner being. So that you, Christ, may dwell in their hearts. God, will you help their unbelief? Root them and ground them in your love and that being rooted and grounded in love that they would know the strength to comprehend the magnitude of your immeasurable power and that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that they might be filled with your fullness. I want to encourage you to use that prayer as I said it's stunning to me because it begins with power and then in verse 17 it begins with love and then verse 18 he prays for power and then in verse 20 he goes back excuse me in verse 19 he goes back to love it's a theme that I just couldn't escape and one that I felt was just magnificent and wonderful. And I pray that you experience more of his love and power in 2023. In Jesus' name, amen.